Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Chad Melchert. Chad is one of Canada's most preeminent live and session drummers. This native Canadian calls Edmonton, Alberta home, but despite his Canadian residence, Chad has toured all over the world and played with artists from all types of genres, including Gord Bamford, Michelle Wright, Lindsay L., Patricia Conroy, Jay Sparrow, Mike Nash, and Joel Camps, just to name a few. Chad has also earned repeated recognition as the CCMA, the Canadian Country Music Association, Drummer of the Year, 2012, 2014, 2015, 2016, and 2019. And in fact, Chad was the first drummer to enter the CCMA Hall of Honor. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I do here at the podcast, you can become a Patreon member. Find us at patreon.com slash working drummer. Any donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content that's provided by our former guests. This content covers a variety of topics, but it's all educational and applicable to the working professional. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can find links to both of these things on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. And while you're there, you can find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done over the years. And no matter what your platform of choice is for listening to podcasts, giving us a like, a rating, and review always helps us grow. So anyone that knows me knows that I've spent a lot of time up in Canada over the last 12, 13 years working with Michelle Wright, who Chad has also worked with. I love the country. I love the people. And uh, when an opportunity came up to speak to somebody like Chad that lives and works in Canada, and he has lived in Nashville and worked in the country music industry down here, but also to get a better understanding of what is happening in this country right across our border uh, is fascinating to me. And I really enjoyed talking to Chad. I think you're going to find some gems that he brings to the table in throughout our conversation. There's some things that have not even been mentioned in our over 340 episodes that just kind of blew my mind. So it was a real treat. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Chad Melchert. a big part of that too like where i'm living the club scene where which is how i always make my living for the most part was playing on weekends every week and in local clubs and, and then traveling up to five six hours for some of them but that works kind of dried up and, and that was pre-pandemic it's kind of gone to more of the casinos instead of bars and that whole scene changed so pre-pandemic i had i was looking at you know going back to teaching a bit or juggling a little bit of stuff or trying something in conjunction with the music to you know, make a living essentially. So um, 
part of that was building my studio was to have that extra little bit of income when I'm not able to go on the road or isn't a gig. You know, there's money to be made in the home studio at least. Right, right, uh, and and that's an interesting question. A, a friend of mine visited recently, and and he was he was asking me. He goes, "Man, are you are you making money at the home studio?" And uh, it's interesting because for me, like many people, we kind of always dabbled in the home studio thing, but then when the pandemic hit, everyone was scrambling to figure out how to earn a living from home, and so. Some people, I'm like guessing you you were do, doing home studio work maybe on a regular basis. Is that the case? Yeah, I would say probably the last six years. I okay. invested pretty much in a Pro Tools rig. And of course, what in its infancy, it was at the most basic, you know, just get some live drum mics and, and just kind of try to get sounds. Um, then in time, I would say probably a good portion of what I've made in my studio, I've reinvested just because you want the sounds to be better and you want to get better at it and um, understand the engineering part of it has been fun. Some people, that doesn't float their boat at all. They don't do, uh, be bothered with it, but I've always enjoyed, you know, how does a mic react with the drum? Um, what's it doing? What does a different mic sound like? What do drum heads do? There's just so many variables and that's the interesting part about the studio and especially the home studio where you get to be the engine and you get to learn and you get to play, hit the you know hit them differently or or uh, use different uh, preamps and things like that you know it's really interesting and and, and I, I probably fall in the category of not being as interested in in the tech or the engineering part of it as I thought I would be but if yeah you're, if you're going to do it you need to have at least a base understanding of how it because I had a compressor that was going in you know that was printing to tape if you know using an old term yeah. recently and the and a couple of the people that I was sending tracks to they said man your kick drum mic is getting a ton of snare drum and cymbals long story short the comp- it was the compressor that I was not using correctly and it was pulling all of that sound into it we thought it was a routing issue I had a couple friends look at it man I don't know what's wrong and finally a buddy of mine said it's your compressor and I'm like daggone it I need to really invest in what's what's happening here more so than I was before well, and it doesn't have to be overly complex. It's those basic things, the basic knowledge. Like for me, I don't use compression. I don't use any any. I'm straight into my DAW, and it's it's the drums and mics only. And I try to play accordingly and, and get the best sounds that way. So I'm giving. So when I'm sending out signal, it's the I guess the least messed with. I guess, and it's the purest. You've got a, more experience at, at the home studio thing than a lot of us who were dabbling in it, and then we kind of like, oh my gosh, we went to panic mode and and bought an interface that we had no clue, and just somebody said, get the Apollo or you know, get the uh, Scarlet, and you know, we're like, oh gosh, what is that? And you know, we ended up trying to learn real fast. Um, but when you were starting. How did you learn? How did you grow in the studio? Sorry. In the studio, I would say probably less about learning in the home studio and being kind of curious when I was in bigger studios when I was younger that I'd ask those questions. And then luckily, when I got into the home situation, I don't care who you are. Nobody understands Pro Tools when you start. <laughs> nobody understands what a DAW does. 
so thankfully I have a good friend, Buffer, who I played in the band with for years. He was good at Pro Tools. He had spent some time engineering and he was very nice and, and uh, gave me a lot of the information and a lot of the stupid questions I had. Um, kind of got me up and running on it. And then really after you get running on it, it's pretty intuitive to me anyway, um, right across all the platforms, whether it be Logic or Pro Tools or you know any of the, the free ones. I think um, Reaper is one that people tend to use. I've never used it. But I mean, really, the vocabulary and how they operate is pretty similar in most of them. If you get a Mac, you get a free copy of GarageBand. And so I was messing around with that in the, in the way early days. Uh and then yep. to move from that to logic was logical and and uh, but yeah it's it's trial and error and taking time to do it um, was and, and it also sounds like you're in the same boat as me where you have kind of a tech guru that you can call you can reach out to and and have some friends that you have a friendship with and 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 can ask those questions. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of imperative. Otherwise, you're, I guess you go to YouTube, but really, if you want to hone in on a problem quickly, just phoning someone you know that, uh, especially the engineers you work with in Pro Studio, or if you don't know any in Pro Studios, there's there's lots of project people out there, even online, that can steer you in the right direction if you're having any issues. And, you know, there's no pride in this. If you're having an issue, just reach out. You know, People are really helpful, and they want to help you when they, when they ask. It was interesting. Um, I the last interview I had um, a great drummer who, who works with Luke Combs. Um, we, we were talking about the home studio and kind of what's required of you for clients as a drummer that's providing stems and different things like that. And and to me, I feel like the information is a little confusing because when you see some great players, uh, maybe that have a, a large following on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, the tones are tricked out. They're using effects, they're using plugins, and it's really fun to listen to. It's entertaining. And you know they can deliver a great product to people that need drums for their project. But at its core, like you mentioned, you're looking to give them just the cleanest, strongest signal that they can then use compression on EQ, whatever. Is that is that pretty much safe to say that almost everything that you're delivering from your home studio is that clean drum sound? Yeah, I would say 99%. There's one guy I do, I do a little um, you know sweetening up for, but he asked for it. And if someone asked for it, I mean, yeah, you can do it, but you're also looking at a lot more work. Um, when you're... I take into to account the price that I'm charging someone and, um, you know, it's a fair price for tracking it. They don't have to rent a studio and all these things. So I, I like the clean thing. I just think it's the most honest um, way to give someone a drum track. If it sounds great that way, and you, you're really keeping your playing in check volume-wise, If you're not hitting compressors and stuff. So you really learn how to play for the recording process versus – bashing away and then hoping someone can fix it after. I just don't think that's the right approach. We've talked about this before, just kind of seeing each limb almost as a fader. Uh, early on, we had Travis McNabb on, and, and he brought up this concept, and it blew my mind when he said that. You know, oftentimes, especially with in-ears that have become so standard for monitoring our playing, we, we turn mm -hmm. into like guitar players. We just hit a knob and turn it down. Oh, the hi-hat's too loud. Well, I'll just turn it down in the mix. 
Well, it, it doesn't yeah. work that way in the studio. You have to be conscientious of how heavy your right hand is, for example. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Speaking for a friend. <laughs> well, and I would say, you know, and I had some honest criticism early on in my career. It's it's like, yeah, the hats, we can't get them. They're just too loud. And it's like, well, I didn't, it didn't make sense to me what they were saying at that time. And until you realize and you engineer your, yourself and try to work with your track, say, for someone else, it's like, man, I, I, I'm kind of being a pain in the you-know-what here. I'm I'm sacrificing my own selfish um, needs or I haven't reflected enough on my playing and, and you know, bashing hi-hats. It can ruin a track. So yeah, those are the things that I'm constantly evaluating. I don't listen to myself play or to pat myself on the back. It's always constructive. That's kind of how I take that's the approach I want. And uh, specifically, I don't know how many people that uh, listen here know what the Glenn Johns technique is with three, essentially two, three microphones on your drum set. You you want to understand what you're doing when you play. Set up two, three mics, maybe even one, and just listen to yourself as a, like an overhead, a mono overhead, and you'll hear what's sticking out. And um, I try to do that with myself quite often just to, just to make sure I'm keeping those things in check. That's amazing, and I and I, you were talking about drum tuning and all these other aspects of getting a quality performance uh, to tape. Mm -hmm. What other things have you invested in, or been cognizant of when when creating that that sound? I mean, you're not using, excuse me, you're not employing plugins like compressors. You're trying to get good sounds. So for one example, just really good tuning of the drums. And, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're talking on FaceTime here and I can see your sound treatment. Is that another aspect? Yeah. You know, treating your room and investing in it, it's not cheap, but um, I was lucky enough because of the situations I've been in. Again, it's the endorsement thing with Prime Acoustic uh, here in Canada. They, they worked with me on it. And uh, yeah, it's it's a huge part of it and you don't really realize it till you try to track in a room without it i tracked in my room before i actually put it up just for fun to see what it would sound like and while it was bonhamish let's say uh very unusable for most things it was neat and everything but definitely the the treatment was huge um and i'm still tweaking it a little bit there's little corner things i'm going to do here uh, and i don't know if it'll make it better but you know you should try at the very least to move things around a bit yeah, it's interesting. Last year, the the podcast work with Sonatus, we did some some YouTube and some episodes on sound treatment and a little bit on soundproofing as well or sound reduction. Um, and uh, when I rebuilt this room, I did an A B and and tracked the drums and 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 so I was going to do a before and after. And when I recorded. The before, I thought, uh-oh, this might backfire because this sounds really cool. Again, bottom ass, yeah. you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm like, this is, oh, this is, sounds really cool. But for, again, what's usable for the track, um, you know, that's, it's got to be clean. And it's just having a better understanding of how that works in in a mix and be able to anticipate the final product and what what our role is in that. Yeah. yeah. 
and it's as simple as little tricks that I use. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people use them, but cotton ball in my toms. That's something I, I've done for a lot of years, and I really use it in my home studio. With a, my square, I have 200 square feet here of space, which isn't huge, but it's enough for drums. And um, there's a lot of stuff kind of running around in the room. So, you know, cotton balling, it just cleans those toms up. It allows me to hone in on the tuning a little bit easier. Um, I recently... Uh, started using the vintage series from Sonar and I found the coated heads. I was fighting with them a little bit just in my room. They were getting a little bit too much uh, reverberation back into them. So I went to, uh, to clear heads on them and man, it's like the magic right there. It's reflection and trying different things and kind of figuring out what works in, in your room because every, every drum set I bring in here reacts differently to it. So, and that's the fun to me is, um, if I could set up four different kits and get four different palettes of sounds, that's exciting. That that really draws different stuff out of you as a player. It, it is really interesting, uh, just just the tone, the reaction of that. Um, the, when you talk about cotton balling, I've seen that before. So is, is anything taped down, or is it just cotton balls in the drum and then just floating around? Yeah, yeah they're just loose in there, so they just react naturally. I like... Th- some people used to put like shredded newspaper and stuff. To me, the cotton ball is a natural thing. It it settles uh, naturally. It lets the drum breathe still, but it does control um, the bottom head. So the bottom head isn't sitting there. I, I, I guess I call it idling like most people is when that bottom head's just sitting there being a nuisance and ringing into your overheads and stuff. It just tames that down a little bit. Plus, oh softens that. Yeah. That's true, man. That's that's. I never thought of that. Like you're you're talking about controlling. So, like on a 16 inch floor tom, how many cotton balls are in something like that? Let me look. Okay. <laughs> I usually put in that a but between 12 and 14 usually. Like I literally have it down to numbers. I'll, I'll put one in and then try it. And usually it's 12 to 14 on a 16 inch floor tom, and then usually around eight. To nine on a 12 inch rack got so so take the size of the drum and subtract two or three and there's your <laughs> yeah i never thought of it that way <laughs> you saved me a lot of time right there. okay well see here we go math <laughs> the power of math but you guys have 13 years of high school you should have figured this out before me yeah. <laughs> well i have I to did, maybe i did <laughs> I have to say, for the record, um, I've done a handful of tours throughout Canada, and um, most people know me as just, uh, I just adore Canada, adore the people, and have had just wonderful experiences, uh, m- mostly with Michelle Wright over the years, since about 2006, 2007. Um, and, awesome. Uh, yeah, so... Um, I have my Canada sweatshirt I wear around from time to time, and there was a band I was in and uh, recently, and people would say, yeah, he's Canadian. They would just like introduce me as Canadian because I just <laughs> talked about it all the time. Well, you, your characteristics and stuff, you'd be a good fit. You okay. should just move up, get a good parka, and move here. <laughs> I'm, da- I'm down, man. I'm down. I was, I was about ready to. My, my wife's about ready to uh, as well, but... Um, you know, I have some friends. I I don't know if you're familiar because we could we I could veer off into a into a whole bit because it's like Canada. It's it's a big country, but I'm always like, hey, you're Canadian. Do you know so and so? And you're like, you know, there's more than like ten of us. Yeah, <laughs> um, I've done that to people, so it's okay. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I had a chance to work with um, Pete Lesperance uh, from Harem Scarum. I don't know if you know that guitar player. I do know. I do know of of him, and I, Harem Scarum. I love that band when I had long hair. Yeah, yeah, dude. I'm I'm a big <laughs> fan. Um, but yeah. uh, well, um, the name of your uh, home studio, you have Abigail Road uh drum studio abigail road home drum studio that's i love that man what what what's i mean it sounds like a play on abbey road but it, what what's abigail well that's my wiener dog and okay. my wife <laughs> yeah, i have two, two wiener dogs i love them and uh yeah it was like abigail and and my wife actually came up with it and i wish i could take credit for it but i just everyone thinks i think most people think wiener dogs are cute and having a wiener dog with sticks in its mouth is a winner. And everyone seems to like the T-shirts. So That's awesome. <laughs> I was selling my studio when there was no studio. So, you know, people were like, well, what are you using? It's like, well, that's really none of your business. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, the results were there, but the room was just an open basement and I had it sounding good. So I didn't want people to focus on that, you know, as much as do you like the drum tracks or they, are they useful to you? So when people are going, Oh, I got to build this studio before I can sell my tracks. Not necessarily. You have to understand how to do it and how to get good results. But I would never put the room, you know, forsake all that having a room. I'm never going to bother doing it until I get a room. Start the process. Even if you got an open basement, like I did, you can still get good tracks. Right. And there's so much to learn. And, and and just to practice recording and practice recording in maybe a less than ideal environment, then when you have the ability to then treat the room, you're already ahead of the curve and you never know when that one opportunity to provide tracks for someone that wants to use you over and over again and just builds your client base, you're ready to go. I, I did a track for a, a, a duo in Germany, like in... 2017 or something like that and my knowledge was so limited and it was brushes it was like a train thing was so limited yep. it, it ended up they 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 had to boost the signal so much to get the volume because i didn't have a strong signal and they said we'll, we'll make it work thank you so much you know but they never called me again uh. and i look back on that now and i was like oh my god what a simple easy fix but yeah yeah that might have been 2014 it was before i I was doing the podcast so i mean i've learned so much from doing the podcast just recording voice you know um let alone drums which is almost easier yeah we all make mistakes you know there's stuff i could have did way better along the way but uh, one thing i say to young drummers specifically is the best investment you can make early on is a good set of ear monitors i'm not talking two thousand dollar ear monitors even a three or four hundred dollar set is a great investment because you start to learn the relationship of the microphone and the drum and what sounds good when you're sitting behind a kit those mics are probably telling a different story so as soon as i i got into ear monitors early and i would say that was the biggest moment for me to go to realize what drums sounded good what made them sound good um tuning it really honed me in early on on the things that um, i would come to use in my own studio so let me ask you about that um are you using molded ears did you start that did you were you concerned with uh, a tight seal with your ears were you wanting a little bit of bleed for the room what was your approach to that 
Um, now, when I first started out, I, I really liked the tight seal, and then I went to headphones for a while. Uh, I don't know why I did that, they, and I blew up very many pairs of the Sonys uh, until I finally got into a custom set when I was living in Nashville. Um, I got into Future Sonics and got into my first set of uh, proper ears that were molded. And to me, I love the isolated thing. I love it's It's more like the studio to me live. I like to hear everything. I don't want to hit my drums too hard and you know I want to make them sound really good uh, it's all like a studio to me even live it's like I want it the performance to be there and uh, having good ears and having that isolation to me is what uh, it's better for time it's better for feel it's better for uh, dynamics to me it just makes sense yeah I'm a huge fan uh, of it and, and there are times I think I think we know we're all asked to 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 do that songwriter gig where there may be a monitor there or not and and you know you're kind of like oh uh, i'm not using a crazy in-ear mix you know you're playing a coffee shop or something like that there isn't that so you have to be able to to adjust but i'm I'm old enough that where when i first started you know it it was sometimes there weren't even there wasn't even a wedge you know in the back of the club and you know by the drums or you had to listen to the room and you had to hear the guitar amps and things like that and then you then you had wedges and then you were just blowing your ears out when 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 i started using in-ears i was like man this is like you're catching the bass player the guitar player on the other side of the stage at the speed of light not at the speed of sound and it just just locked everything in and i loved it and my ears weren't ringing at the end of the night yeah what a gift that is like yeah i i I would say early on even in my career even when i was on a wedge i wore earplugs like i just the the volume of drums i know everyone will hate to hear that but especially guitar players but um i can't stand drums when i sit in a room with them like i have to have ear protection and i can't it just doesn't work for me so uh it's always been a major consideration so that's where the ear monitor thing did come from was i was jamming my ears with awful earplugs anyway so i might as well have something that sounds good in there yeah yeah and and and, and as you're mixing are you putting Say you're you're on stage with a band. Are you getting everything in the mix? Maybe all the drums and the toms, and what are you getting? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much like what you would listen to. I try to make it sound like a like a recording to me. Um, I always leave the singer's guitar out because they're never in time, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, tend to just lay a little low on the keyboards because they're always ahead of the beat and. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's pretty much a full mix, except for uh, I just kind of dial the vocals back a little bit. I don't need to, you know, it doesn't need to sound like an Eagles album. It's it's about the click track, the drums, and kind of knowing where you are in the song. I look at every every song I play live as practice for the studio. That's my mentality is how well can I play to the click and how how can I make it musical for everyone around me without feeling clinical. Man, that's so inspiring to hear. I, when I first started using ears, when I moved to Nashville 20 years ago, and some of the people I played with wanted a click, or I knew that playing live with a click was common in Nashville, where it wasn't before um, in other gigs that I was doing. But you know, I wanted to do the road gig with with a country artist, and and they they might ask that I play to a click and knowing that in the studio you were going to almost guarantee play to a click so I thought well I'm gonna now I've got in-ears I've got a I've got a mixer here I can run a click into it and practice and get 
comfortable as if I'm doing a session, as if I'm in the studio. And so just what you just said, uh, it's so great to hear that because that's always been my mentality is just practice as if when you go into a session, it's not new. You're just comfortable. You're settling into it. You know how to play with a click and other musicians at the same time. Yeah, and and I think it's being able to, you know, if you're reading a chart, read it and breathe and and take that time to know when a verse is coming up or a chorus. And I, I'm not a big person on uh, thinking too much when I play it. It should be it should be natural. It should be musical. It should sculpt around what the vocal's doing. If it's 99% of what I do has a vocal in it, so I don't want to be stepping on things. Um, and that goes for live too. It's like what a what a great opportunity to practice for studio. If you want to be a studio musician, be a really great live one first, yeah. and practice practice for where you want to end up versus um, being surprised when you get there. Yeah, that's so that's so great that you say that, uh, and and, it, and that has served me pretty well. I still have a long way to go, but um, it's I, I'm I'm just work again. It, it's it's. Some people, studio, they're doing studio work every week, all the time, and mm-hmm. they get very comfortable with it. And there was times before the home studio for me, I was doing indie projects, and I think this might be more commonplace for most people, so maybe they can relate to this. The time that we're in the studio is less than somebody like Eddie Bears or Chad Cromwell or somebody like that. That is, they live in the studio. Like, they're spending more time recording than they're playing live. Uh, And so they're just very comfortable with that environment that for a lot of us, we're doing gigs, we're playing with people, and then somebody, hey, we're doing an album, or we're doing an album project, and then you, next thing you know, you're in the studio, and you're like, oh, no, how do I navigate this world? Yeah. <laughs> but what you're saying is, like, treat the live situation, because we have in-ear monitors, because you can throw a click on on a lot of situations, it's almost like pretending. So you're playing to a click, you're learning to play to a click, you're learning to breathe and relax, but you're also learning how to mix yourself, going back to what you were saying before. So even live, don't bash that hi-hat. Don't get in the habit of doing that. Yep. Yeah, no, no one on that stage is going, man, I need that snare to be louder. Like, <laughs> man, <laughs> I need those hi-hats to be smashing a little. I can't quite feel it. You know, No, it's about what's the drum set giving them for a complete sound and treat it as one instrument. And that's all stuff. I, I, I love being on stage. It's just it's practice for the studio. Everything to me has always been practice for the studio. Um, that way, I just find you serve the people you're playing with and for as honestly as you can. You're not sloughing it off. Um, you're taking it seriously. I'm not saying don't have fun, but there is. if you want to be good in this, you certainly have to um, respect everyone you work for and, and, and give your best effort. And doing that with a click track and doing that with that approach like you're going in the studio kind of keeps you honest. Yeah. It's two things uh, real quick is is uh, there was some sort of uh, drummer community Facebook page and somebody was asking about when running a click live, what else do you have in your mix? And all these people were responding and I, I chimed in through the podcast Facebook page and said, hey, it's Matt here. And because I use the, the, the mixer and the in-ears a lot live. And I said, you know, I've got one channel with a click and the other channel just I, I just use a mono mix because I'm 
different clubs, different situations. I don't have time to pan things and whatever, and I've just kind of gotten used to just a mono mix. So it's easy enough, quick. Um, but a lot of responses were, I've got the click, and then I've got kick and snare. That's all. And, you know, if drums are completely mic'd up, I'm thinking... Okay, I get that, and that's where we're that's where we're living most of the time. But I'm just surprised that there wasn't at least a little hi hat and maybe some toms. A lot of times, I won't use overheads. I feel like it just kind of cleans things up. But I do make sure that I get other people, not just the bass and drums. I get maybe some vocals where I can hear where that person is phrasing it. Um, I I'm like you. I identify the person that has great time. It may not be the bass player. It may be the guitar player. And if I'm yep. if I'm new to a singer-songwriter and they've got a guitar in their hand, I'm like, I'm going to be cautious about getting that in my mix because I don't... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good way to say it. Yeah, I'm the same way. It's like it can ruin yours and everyone around you's evening if you put too much of that in your ears, for oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For you sure. know, uh, the other thing, and, and you were kind of touching upon this, but I, I thought of this right before we, we connected here this question Is there something about your live and session work that's required of you that people might be surprised to hear? Here's something that. I'm asked to do or that I'm known for or that people appreciate about me when I'm playing for them live and in the studio? I think I know what you're asking. And I, for me, it's, um, again, and I'm sure you've heard it a million times, is what what do you bring as far as uh, attitude and, um, I guess, levity to a situation Um that can be really tense. That can be really scary. When you get really comfortable in the studio, it's hard. You have to force yourself to remember that some people are really, really scared around you and, um, and really be there for them and prop them up. And, and I'm not saying be fake about it, but, um, people need to be hurt. They need to hear that they're doing a good job and that, you know, you're aware it's the first time and you can even tell stories about your first time in there. So for me, I think one thing, you know, you come up as a big gruff guy sometime or something to some people, but it's really about being sensitive. Some people might not know that about me. Um, when I'm in a studio, I like to, to be there for the artists and the people around me to, to help them create and be relaxed. Is that kind of what you were asking? Or? Uh, I think, yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, it could take that, that answer could take on any form. And, and you said you've, we've probably heard this before. I mean, yeah, attitude and be able to get along with people, you know, that's a big element, but, but you've taken it a place. I don't think we've ever discussed before is when you're in the studio, oftentimes the artist, the songwriter, the singer that's coming in, it may be their first time. They certainly don't have as much experience as the hired musicians in the studio and i know exactly what you're saying and there's been uh, gosh recently uh we did something there's three of us that were hired and the girl was just excited to be there and and you know she wasn't from nashville and it's like as far as she was concerned we were like nashville studio aces i i didn't want to tell her the truth but you know it was <laughs> But you could tell she was just like, she didn't want to sing in front of us. And and it's like, no, this is great. And and you have to remind yourself, if it wasn't for these people, 
we wouldn't be working. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's you got one thing I always try to rem- remind myself is that these people they might have been sitting on like you can record music for all ages and some of these songs they've been sitting on these for some twenty years and the fact that they've one picked the studio to be vulnerable in two music to be around and that's that's a lot of vulnerability that they're um, they're showing and they're allowing a lot of people to something that's very personal so. You know, maybe don't be on your phone when they're trying to describe what the song means to them. Be present, listen, um, and bring bring your A game for them because they deserve it, and they're they're paying you to be there um, at a, usually a fair fair expense if they're in any kind of studio. Um, that's just one thing that's always uh, not bugged me, but it's 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 made me shake my head is when I'm working with certain people and you know they're not taking that little bit of time to get to know the people because the music's better if you do that. I love that, man. I love that. So amazing. And I can get behind that 100%. And man, at the end of the day, it's just, it's it's funner for you too, because it's like, man, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, enough said. I, I love that. That's, that's, that's brilliant. Really great. Really great. Um, tell me about, is it Morinville, Alberta? Is that where you grew up? No, I'm actually from... Uh... Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, which is you might have toured Saskatchewan with Michelle, but yeah, it's it's northern Saskatchewan, and then Morinville is just a suburb of Edmonton, uh, okay. home of the Oilers. The Oilers, um, yeah. So it's just <laughs> about a thousand people, smaller town, but it's a suburb. So you know, it'd be like living just outside of Nashville. Essentially, I can go in and do whatever I need, but get out where it's a little slower. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, what was your introduction uh, to to drums, to, to music? Um, well, early on, it was just my parents' love of music got me into just music in general. And really, the whole um, being a drummer thing, my brother played guitar, and we had a friend who played bass, and it's like, well, I'll play drums. And uh, luckily, I found it remarkably easy. I, I'm not going to lie to you, I sat down and it wasn't it wasn't something I struggled with. I was playing lots of sports, so drums kind of came natural. Um, I wouldn't have said, I, I would have probably pursued it if it had been difficult to start. That wasn't in my personality at that age. I might have circled back to it, but um, it was something I was pretty good at to start with, and that fed, I guess, kind of into that, not the ego, but self-confidence at an age when you're 14, 15. When people start uh, you know, noticing that you're good at something, it, it spurs you on and you start to feel confident about it. Right, right. I'm seeing that in my 16-year-old as he's picked up guitar, and then just a few short years later, he's he's playing, and and uh, and I, I want to nurture that. And it's like, no, this is good. This is where the foundation begins, um, and 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 be encouraging, but also uh, expose him to the realities of. I, I, I've always wanted them to like have music as a part of their life. But, you know, I'm like, is this what you want to do? And he's like, yeah, this is what I want to do for a living. So I want to just gently introduce some of the realities uh, of that. And and it, it, it and I, I, I mean, it brings it, – it's, it's a great way to make a living. And, it, and it's – there's so much joy, but, but, but you really have to deal with the highs and lows of it. And, yeah. and uh, I, some people – you know, I, I just don't want him to discover like, man, this is this is harder than I thought to, to actually try and make a living at. But, you know, yeah, well, yeah. And, and I think we all have our kids best, you know, 
best life. You know, that's what's most concerning to me. Both my sons were, they both could play drums. They were natural at it, both of them. And they were both like, you know what, dad, we don't want to do that. We watched how hard it was for you. And I said, that's cool. Like, love me they both love music and they have appreciation for it but the reality was you know there were some tough times and when they're five six up to 15 years old they notice when stuff's financially tough or or stressful and um it's it's a wonderful way to make a living i would never discourage anyone but i think you're absolutely right you have to be honest um show them all the good stuff but also show them there is some they're going to be pushed to levels of being uncomfortable as well Right, right, and just be ready for that, and and uh, be able to to roll with it. Uh, so, did, was there a point in at a, was there a certain age where you're like, man, I, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to earn my living. Pretty much right away. Like when I was fourteen, fifteen, I I was lucky. The community I lived in, there was older guys playing every weekend, so I was jumping right into gigging. You know, a year after picking up sticks, so I knew. Yeah, it was just like, I knew as soon as I was done high school, it was just a matter of getting out of prison to me. That's what it felt like. Uh, and I knew I would go to, to music school for a few years and soak as much as I could. And even from that point, it's like, I'm going two years, I'm going to take this performance degree. I'm probably going to uh, flunk uh, all my theory, which I did, because I was terrible at it. But it was about the experience. And then it was like, I just, every step of my way, I knew where I wanted to go. And it was, you know, someday for me, it was to play on the Grand Ole Opry. And that was kind of that pinnacle I uh, I was aiming for early on was to play for a major artist um, and get on that stage. And I, I, I did that. You know, I had several opportunities to do it. And then at that point, you readjust maybe. But it, um, for me, it was right away. I knew it right away. That's that's amazing. Uh, you went to uh, Red Deer College and studied uh, music performance. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So two years there. And then I think it was a couple of years after me, Chad from Nickelback went there. So maybe I missed being in that band by a couple of years. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have a lot more money. Yeah. <laughs> Did you, um, was country music kind of an area that you wanted to spend time in? I mean, when you were younger, you're like, oh man, Grand Ole Opry, that's my place. Um, I would say that was on my radar because my my grandma Melford always talked about it. And for me, it was like if I could make her proud somehow, that was kind of a goal. But yeah. I went through my heavy metal phase. Like I had long hair, did all that. And then really when I was in college, it uh, that's when kind of Garth Brooks and, and that whole wave took over. Yeah. And I just saw it as an opportunity to play the biggest stages. And I did like the music. Like the music was exciting. Um, you had Garth and all these types of, of new country acts that were new. It wasn't your uh, grandpa's country, which don't get me wrong. I love old country too. But at that age, it was about what's hip, what's going to get me working and on the road. So right away, it was like, that's country where I live. It's kind of like the Texas, Canada that way. It's a very country, a lot of country clubs and stuff like that. So I knew I could make a living doing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't anticipate that it, that country music would be where I'd make my living, but uh, I really enjoy it. And uh, modern—I wouldn't say pop country, but but modern country. When I say the last, you know, thirty years or so, has been good for drummers. You know, absolutely, yeah, and yeah, it's kind of 
the good rock of the seventies and eighties. It's like all the stuff that that I loved growing up. That kind of country ended up in its heyday for me was big backbeats, just solid drumming, um, really standing behind the vocal and uh, not being this big show showboat about it. That's that's really where I fit into it, and that's where I felt comfortable. Yeah. Was there someone you were listening to early on or, or a couple drummers when you were growing up that that kind of resonated with you and kind of put you on this path? Um, big time. And, and I know it's probably the most overstated one, but Jeff Beccaro for me was, I total for that album, I just wore it out. I still, I actually practiced to a record player still when there were CDs available, something about the sound of it. Um it was a big, big influence, and kind of unknowingly, you had your Nashville greats, which were your Eddie Bears, Paul Lyme. Uh, big one for me was Larry London. I just thought his playing was so powerful, just on a whole different level to me. He, there's great drummers, but the, then there's Larry London, the way he played. I listen to some of his uh, brushwork, and it just blows my mind. Yeah, really, really amazing. Uh when I was growing up, uh, you know, I was practicing along with the police and Rush and, you know, progressive rock, you know, yes, and in different things like that. But I had this Amy Grant, my sisters had this Amy Grant Christmas record. And, yeah. you know, because I was, my, I had a cassette player and a record player. So some stuff, boy, talk about learning to play with dynamics. Because you'd be playing with these rock records, and I wasn't using headphones. I was using speakers, but if I played too loud, the records would skip. So I had to learn to play dynamically to hear the record. <laughs> but I loved that Amy Grant Christmas record, and I wish I knew. Who, I wish I knew who played on that. You know, we're talking, you know, in the late '80s. Um, but there was, but it was, it was all Nashville players. Um, I, I mean, country music or Nashville was not on my radar, you know, when I'm 17 yeah. years old, but something about that record, like, okay, I'm going to play to exit stage left and then I'm going to put yeah. the Amy Grant Christmas record on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I went, you know, I went from really heavy, like I, was, I loved Metallica before they were even big and got into that. But then I was, I loved Sam and Dave. Like I, I loved Motown stuff. So I got as much enjoyment out of playing to Sam and Dave's greatest hits as I did the heavy metal stuff I was doing. So drumming, it was whatever made me feel good when I was playing it. And that didn't necessarily have to be anything heavy. So I'm just wondering with that Amy Grant, if that wasn't Greg Morrow at that time, or would that be too early for him? I wonder. I'm, I need to look it up. I need to look it up. It, it could have been uh, Greg for sure. Um, Man, it's, it's so funny. I, I had him on early on in this episode. He's been one of my heroes uh, for years. Oh, when, I love him. When I first moved to town, um, when I was still trying to learn country music and the, and learn kind of what was what people were doing, uh, Dixie Chicks came out with their record Fly, and I would play along with that record. I'd work at the drum store, and then I'd close up and go in one of the practice rooms and put Dixie Chicks on and, and play along with that. And I'm like... I can hear everything that's going on. I'll just try and imitate this guy, Greg Morrow, I think is his name. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's so good. I did a show with uh, we opened for Reba. It was be a few years ago now, but you know, I'm in awe because Greg Morrow's been a hero of mine. I just just from looking at tracks, like who played on it. Oh, that's Greg Morrow again. Oh, that's Greg Morrow. I love that. That's Greg Morrow. Uh, and then I finally met him, and he was 
so gracious and such uh, uh, to watch him side stage was awesome. But he also shocked me when I was uh, loading my drums on the stage and all of a sudden I, I kind of felt the presence of someone behind me while Greg helped me load my stuff on the stage and set up. It was like, that's the kind of guy he is. And I'll, I'll never forget that. That was probably something very small to him, but to see that humility and that ability to, to, you know, just hang with another drummer. He was very comfortable with that. That's not always the case. You know, you meet some people that are, you know, maybe they're shy or whatever, but Greg was just top notch. I can't think of a better person that I've met in the industry. Well, yeah, it totally nailed. I mean, it just so, so great, man. I, I took my son to a session. A friend of mine was on. He, my son had a day off from school and I said, Hey, are you doing a session? Is it something that we could, we could come to and I could show my son like a real heavy duty Nashville session? And he looked into it and said, yeah, you get, y'all are welcome. Come on out. You know, we'll sit there and put headphones on. You could sit in the control room. And Greg was on the session. And um, he was just uh, just very kind, and the band leader mm-hmm. was printing off extra number charts for us so we could follow along. Oh, cool. It was just just what a great experience. That's awesome. I want to be I want to be you in that situation. I'd love to see him on a session. Yeah. Um, I find all the my record kind of like me. I don't I don't do videos. It's like, and, and it's probably a question you might maybe we're going to ask later. But to me, the way I've seen the industry become so focused on video and being seen, to me, when I'm in a studio, it feels private. It feels almost um, dirty. I wouldn't say dirty, but it feels like it's something that's sacred to me when I'm recording. I and having a camera in the room feels like it pulls me out of that. And I don't know if that makes sense to you, but totally. Um, it's been a real struggle for me with the way the industry's gone and you know how many people request it um but i'm just not there yet personally no i i feel comfortable doing a little bit of that at home i don't do it enough because i can do multiple takes and i'm by myself but when i'm at a studio on someone else's dime it's the last thing from my mind to do i may take a picture of the of the space and maybe post it. Um, yep. But I get it, man. Especially when you're, yeah, I mean, the, the, they're paying for the time there. And so you need to be yeah. hyper-focused. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting thing when you're in the studio and I don't know, to me, when I get in a, in a working mood, especially in my own studio, it's like I get, I wouldn't say it's frantic. It's nothing like that, but I get so focused and goal driven that the last thing I want to be thinking of is, did I hit record on that too? It's like, I want to make sure I'm capturing the music. You know, when you're engineering yourself, you don't want to be making mistakes there too. It just pulls me out of the music. And um, yeah, I've struggled with that a little bit at some point, I guess I got to get on it, but um, it hasn't hurt me yet. So, well, that's the thing. I think the only thing that I've heard from time to time is, is the producer will say, Hey, when you're tracking, if you, do a video or do want to do any social media the singer would love it you know sure yeah that's fair and and a request like that you put an iphone on a stand and make sure you're you know playing to the click it's usable it's good i have no problem with people using that stuff it's just in my own space uh, in general it's like i i just want to get my work done i'm very driven that way so yeah, it's just a part of the the industry I've seen change in the last few years and maybe a little bit too much emphasis on that over, you know, just getting it done. Right, right, right. Well, uh, who, who have you played with at the Opry here? 
that you you mentioned, you know, getting to the Opry and yeah. So I, I lived in Nashville from 2006 to 2008, and I played with a guy named Adam Gregory. So we we were doing really well um, at that time. So yeah, I, I think I played there three times total when we uh, were kind of pushing his singles, and um, that's where I met Eddie Bears for the first time. And I'd say that was one of the more nerve wracking things having him stand behind you, but. Um, yeah, it, he was awesome too. I got a great picture with him, and um, they were all with I named Adam Gregory, a Canadian artist who uh, was doing real well. And then uh, 2008, the economy kind of hit the tank, if you remember that, and uh, we kind of all had got sent home essentially. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I remember that. Um, well, 2008 for sh- for sure. Uh, if if you if you don't mind, you posted something today on Facebook that caught my eye, and and because I wanted to talk a little bit about the differences between the Canadian music industry and 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 the way it it is in the states, and um, you know, uh, country music is so kind of synonymous with with North America in general. Um, and, and over the years you see this, it's not just, you know, American music that's country. You've got Canadian country music, you've got Australian country artists, um, you know, all all these different countries that, that, I mean, my joke is people are like, you like country music? I'm like, which country? Because Brazil has some great music, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's a fact. You want some Jobim? Come on, man. Let's do some Jobim. But as far as like that kind of rootsy, what what is quote unquote country music, um, there's a voice that's very uh, strong that is that comes from Canada. That's represented, and and uh, Gord Bamford, one of the artists that you work with. I mean, gosh, I was listening to some of his stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's 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 country music to me, man. You know, twenty twenty yeah. first century country music. And I was listening listening to some Adam Gregory as well. And um, mm-hmm. it, it's it's strong. I I'm, I'm trying to think of who he he reminded me of a couple. His name is escaping me now, but. On, on Facebook, you, you had posted something, and I wonder if you would mind unpacking a little bit of this that might kind of open this can of worms or a little bit or explain maybe some of the differences or some of the some of the things about that might be interesting to our listeners about Canada and, and the way music is 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 produced and marketed and and, and, and reached uh, reaches people. In in uh, in um, contrast to the United States, but um, you said on Facebook about Adam Ge- Gregory, we have a very unique market where we can promote our own and create our own sound. In my opinion, all too often, those making these decisions are far too focused on chasing tales of those south of the border. Will anything change? Not likely, but I feel the need to say it. That was pretty powerful, man. Yeah. Um, that comes from experience of, say, an artist like Adam Gregory, who early on was pushing boundaries sound-wise and really um, I, 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 being in that situation with him for so long. I guess the focus of that, that whole issue was um, the guy who gave and gave and gave to a Canadian industry and, and really 
kind of got a, a whole bunch of these artists you're seeing today really excited about the industry. And I guess that, that whole thing was less about the border and about um, great people being expendable in this industry. Um, you know, Adam specifically to me was one who gave and was a wonderful human and, and very talented. And when he didn't fit what they wanted and, um, they want the guy who is pure and, you know, appears to be very godly and all these things, but they also want you to go and, and drink with them after like, and, and he was never that. So I think that's where that struggle came in. He had all the goods, like he, and we had good hits um, in that situation. It was just money that kind of ran out. I think it would have went somewhere. Um, and as far as the music thing, you know, in Canada, we have a thing called CanCon. So there's a certain amount of, um, Canadian music that has to be played. It's kind of mandated that there's a certain amount. And um, it's almost like the fact that they're doing that, everything else has to sound kind of chasing the American sound all the time. It's like, what are the Americans doing? Well, we got to sound like that because we want it to fit in to the format. Whereas I would, I would love to see that be there, but I'd also like to see a difference there used to be more of a difference uh, when the Michelle Wrights and these people started out. It's like, yeah, I could tell that was Canadian. And some people would say, well, that's, it doesn't sound as good as the others. I disagree. I, I thought it was, it was unique. It was ours. Um, and there's always going to be people who sound like uh, someone in a different country, but I, there's definitely an opportunity to be uh, neat and maybe pull Americans into what you're doing by being different instead of just being another cog in the wheel. Yeah, yeah, man, I totally agree. I, again, I didn't grow up on with country music. I, I don't have like the same dog in the fight as some of my friends that that grew up on it. That just that really know the history and and it just it's 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 almost like a religion to them in, in some ways. But I, the the one thing I can equate that to is uh, is the way Texas has their scene and. You know the way Texas does; they they're very proud of their way of running their own show. Um, Absolutely, you know, on all things, music, politics, everything. Yeah, I mean, and you know, it's like, and and when I hear Texas country, I'm like, oh yeah, I hear it. I hear just this raw energy, yeah. this roots thing, and I've heard that in Canadian artists too. Yeah, there's some. You got Coulter Wall. You've got guys that 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 do break that that mold, and they fit it. People in the states absolutely go wild for them. It's like to me, that's a better approach of just trying not to fit in. And it's like be you, be be so individual that you pull people to you instead of chasing it. And I guess that's kind of my my statement. That's when I say the south of the border thing. It, it's not a deterrent on on anything going on in the states because. I, I love the scene there. I, I was in it. It was awesome. But I also love this scene, and I want to see studio musicians get better. I want to see engineers get better. I want to see songwriters get better. And the only way they get better is by creating and cultivating our own scene, kind of like what a Texas has, has done, and be proud of it, almost defiant to the point where, hey, this is what we are. We're different. Um, come to us instead of the other way around. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's interesting because even within, so, so even just in the bubble of Nashville, you have people chasing someone else's sound. You know, when Taylor Swift first started breaking 
there were all these other female artists that other labels were nurturing and 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 so you you almost heard uh, what was before a, a really great, strong female artist with her own sound trying to sound like Taylor yeah. or some of the compositions that, you know, compositionally arranged, you know, just sonically more like her. And it's it's always it's always a thing. And and I always call music. Uh, sorry, I I've been calling Nashville music business town. Um, and it's less about this being creative and it's like, how can we sell something, something? And, yeah. um, yeah. And so even within the Nashville scene, the country music scene, you have that on a micro level and then you get, you don't get the best of what that artist or writer really has to offer. Yeah. It's almost like they have to you know, reach a level of success, kind of watered down success, and then they can branch out and be who they truly are, which is kind of sad. That's the way it is. But I guess if you're there, that's that's the way they want to play the game. And um, you got to play it. If, I guess if the ultimate goal is to do this for a living, um, sometimes you got to make concessions and, and leave a little bit of your pride at the door and, and uh, you know, get there. It might take you longer, but uh, get there. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Man, it's tough, and 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 I, I sympathize with with those that are artists that want that are going out as artists or as writers, and and I'm like, wow, well, man, I'm all I have to do is play drums and and support yeah. what you guys are creating, and and if your career takes a left turn, I I I've I can move on to somebody else or or do this or that, but when you find that artist that you enjoy working with and whose music that you connect with. Um, it's it's tough to watch them struggle. Yeah, and that the Adam thing for me was I started with him when he was just a teenager. He had his first record out at thirteen. Um, he's a young man that I, I just loved dearly and and thought of like a brother. And to and that's why I took it probably a little more personally than most. Um, you know, grown people, you could kind of they they go into this willingly, but when they start at thirteen and they've on, they're on their third record by the time they're sixteen, um, you know, he paid his dues and paid a lot of prices, and, and um, I would have liked to have seen it end much better for him than it has. Yeah, no, I get that. That's that's really cool, man. Um, yeah, and it was a powerful statement, and I was like, man, I, I hope Chad doesn't mind that I'm going to break this up. No, not at all. I've got no business here, I know But I can't seem to let you go Life's been passing with time stands still if I don't get a grip now, well, tell me about uh, the gig. Uh, is Gord Bamford a, a, a regular road gig for you? It was up till a couple months ago. I stepped out of that band. Okay. Again, work things. So um, pre COVID, I was looking at doing that, um, stepping away. I'll just set this up a little bit. Before COVID, I did a year long tour with uh, the We Will Rock You, the Queen musical. So that took me way out of my comfort zone, way out of my normal scene. And it kind of got me looking at the music industry a little little differently. Um, it opened my eyes to a world of theater, 
of how fun playing on a, on a musical could be. And um, so I was kind of readjusting things myself uh, before the pandemic and then and, and pandemic hit. And um, just in the last year, there just isn't enough work to uh, really stay in that situation. So I pulled back out of that. Um, there's another younger guy take that's taken that gig and I'm more focused on the studio and taking the gigs that I kind of want to do yeah. uh, locally. Yeah, so a little bit of different stuff, some blues, kind of try to stretch out a little bit more that way, keep it keep it interesting and fresh. Well, how did the wheel, I saw some pictures, it looked amazing, and we've talked to some people that have done that gig before. Uh, how did that gig come about, the, the We Will Rock You musical? Um, so the one thing with all these things is there's always a common thread, someone you know. And I always tell people that it's like network, get to know people, that came from uh, a very established uh, guitar player from Calgary, Russell Broom. He was appointed as um, musical director for it. I had done sessions with him and some live work, but mainly session work. Um, and he asked me, and I wouldn't take it because of the commitment of, of essentially a year. And I, I took it. Um, so yeah, he he was the one who, who presented it to me and offered it, and I was I was like, yeah, absolutely, it's the right time. Something I hadn't done before. Um, it was a challenge and I made some of the best friends I've ever had in my life on that tour. And right from 20 years old to 50 years old, I, I loved them all dearly. It just grew into a family over a year. It was awesome. That's amazing. That's, uh, my co-host interviewed a guy that's on tour with the Hamilton, uh, crew. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he's, he's really enjoyed it. So did you guys travel all over with that tour? Yeah, we did all of North America. So we did one side of the States to the other, and then we did all of Canada as well and wrapped up three weeks before the shutdown, like three, four weeks before the COVID shutdown. So it was kind of perfect timing. Um, we didn't really hear anything about COVID except for maybe on the news a little bit when we were on our last few weeks of the tour. But um, I would highly encourage I know a lot of guys who play in the country scene and stuff that would just, you know, probably get scared away of it maybe, but man, it's, it's a different, it's a whole different role. You're just this one piece of a big machine, but man, is it rewarding when everything's firing together and you present the show that just, it, it could be a little bit cheesy. It could be campy. It could be whatever, but when people are in that audience and you're giving them that kind of entertainment, being that one little piece of that puzzle is just, it's so rewarding. It's it's totally different than anything I've ever done. What, what was your setup with that? Because musicals require so many different kinds of sounds and different kinds of things. What was your setup for that that gig? That was all electronic. So I was a Roland TD-50 for a year straight. I went and got the flagship, the big one. Roland was great with me on that. Um, I, I paid for it, but I got, got a good deal on it. Uh, yeah, so I was playing pads for... A year that created a little bit of anxiety for when I would be off on a break and I had a session. It's like, can I still play acoustic? You know, um, it didn't affect me at all. But it was it was weird. A year of playing electronic drums was was definitely a different thing. It's interesting. I, I'm I'm always curious about that because I, I've got a I've got my studio here, but I also have a small soundproof room that I do can do recording in a little bit. But it's it's more just to keep the sound up, but I've always thought, man, especially with the shutdown, my family was, we were all spending more time at home. Yeah. And, um, and I, I wanted to woodshed as much as possible. And sometimes when you're shedding on that repetitive pattern, 
I mean, after 26 years, my wife has been so patient with me. She's always known me, you know, but but I'm like, what about as the electronic kits have gotten better? What if I got one of those electronic kits that I could just sit there and do that repetitive pattern over and over and not bother anybody? But how would that really help? Would that really, would that mess me up with the acoustic kit? Yeah, it never it never did for me, and I still have. I'm just looking at it over here. I always have an e kit, just for that reason. Like I, in good faith, can't do that to my family. I, like it's pretty soundproof in here, but I even annoy myself with it, like to the point where it's like I, I know I'm not annoying everyone, so I'm okay with it. But I, I think there's great value in playing e kits. It's different. It's a different feel. It's a different touch. Some things are harder. Some things are easier. So. Um, as long as you're developing muscle and muscle memory and all these things that we're going for, I think they're great. And doing that tour just reaffirmed, um, I will never not play acoustic drums. Let's get that straight. That's just, I love real drums. (laughs) I love real cymbals. Um, but it's fun and it, it totally, if that didn't exist, I would have been in a glass box for a year. So the choice was be in a glass box and, and, essentially play by yourself or play these and be interacting and be part of the show, which we were. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder if I would have made the same decision because I think my apprehension to electronics, even at the, the current state, um, that's weird. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, that's, in, that's also encouraging to know that, that you had a good experience with that. Yeah. And you know, they were the best ones you could buy and they're, they're great. Like, they're still pads and they're still, they're not real, but, um, to me, if, if it hadn't been a, an option, um, I don't know what I would have did because it would have been pretty, uh, miserable living in a glass cage for, <laughs> um, drumming's drumming to me. It's, it's all about a physical motion and, and yeah, it feels a little different, but the pay was good and the people were even better. So it was well worth it. You would have been in a glass cage of emotion. I hear what you're saying, yeah. Chad. Emotion. <laughs> <laughs> um, the um, I asked this. Uh, speaking of Eddie Bears, um, I asked him this question. I, I, so you've won the CCMA, the Canadian Country Music Association Drummer of the Year, 2012, 2014, 2015, 2016, and 2019, yeah. uh, and was the first drummer to enter the CCMA Hall of Honor. Uh, when you first started getting these awards, did anything change for you work-wise? Uh, not, not overly, honestly. It certainly didn't pay any better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for endorsements, I've always looked at this, this, the business as endorsements are great. Some people, you know, are all anti-endorsement. I've never been that way. I want to to make stuff the most affordable I can. I like good gear. And if I can, can afford it, uh, um, any break on that is wonderful. So it was great. It's kind of, I looked at it as a reward for one, my family who's been there all along. Um, it's something that they can hold up and be proud of. Um, my parents, my wife, my kids, but also those endorsers who quite frankly, a lot of them, uh, took chances on me when I was a nobody and, uh, just believed in me. So it, to me, it was a reward to to be able to say that and be associated with these, these brands and these items, um, as a winner, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. They did never really, no, never, uh, 
wasn't really it for that ever. Yeah. That's amazing, man. Wow. What a, I w- wouldn't expect that answer, but that, yeah, that's, that's great. That's amazing. Um, it, one thing I read about your, uh, are, do you have, uh, a stu- are you teaching now? Do you have students available that you're teaching? Not currently. Um, just the schedule. I just, I can't, uh, in good, in good conscience be teaching people and step away for the amount of time. Mm-hmm. That I had to. Um, I did do three years straight, like night after night after night, and then I was doing sporadic one-on-ones. I still work if a if a kind of a young pro wants a hand with something like working on a shuffle or uh, certain groove type stuff. Absolutely, I get together with them and do those things. But um, it's just about being fair to the student and having the time to give them, and that's that's not really where I'm at right now. Yeah, especially if if you want to teach and 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 if you have young people, there's consistency is key. Uh, from it's what every, I understand, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. That relationship and one thing you you realize after a while when you teach is you become a part of their life. And and for a lot of those people, you're a father figure. Um, even when you're young, you're in your twenties. They're they're younger than you, so it's a big responsibility. It's important to uh, give them something to look forward to. And if you don't, if you're not there every week for them, they can take it personally too. They, you know, they, I've seen them with hurt feelings when, you know, I had to do a tour and it's like, you almost have to make it up to them somehow. And uh, it's just not the fair, it's not a fair thing to do, especially with young people. It's, it's amazing. Uh, one of our guests, Joe McCarthy, uh, a great drummer is mostly based out of New York, but lives in Florida now and has, has been doing some teaching and he, he talks about the, the the school, the music school where he teaches. There's a lot of young people there that have um, a tough, uh, tough, tough time at home, and to be able to come to the school and be there, it's it's that little light in their life, in their week, and and uh, just something about that, not responsibility, but that honor, that that privilege of providing something to these young people aside from something that's not great at home. And I was like, man, what, what that, yeah, what a great, what a privilege to be able to do that. Yeah, and I think that's a good perspective is it is a privilege. You know, you hit things for a living and people think it's that cool that they want to hear what you have to say. They want to get to know you. Um, there's just so many good things about that. And it's a responsibility that if you're doing any of this at any level, putting yourself out there that's you, you should keep that in mind and uh, i certainly try to um, I, have, I have opinions and some are you know have been over the top at times in my life but i always try to keep that that in mind when i'm saying the things i say or um people are watching you you got to always be aware of that but yeah, yeah these kids these kids need something and in canada specifically there's um in saskatchewan there's a lot of aboriginal populace like a lot of kids uh, in the schools there that they, they just don't have it that good. So when you can go in and spend a day with these kids and, uh, you know, give them a little bit of hope, there's nothing better than that. Yeah. Yeah. In, in one of the descriptions of, of your teaching, it was saying, uh, you, you like to teach function. You like this to teach the student to be a functional drummer in the band. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you wrote, or was, did somebody write that for you? Or no, that's me. To okay. me, it's yeah, that's absolutely me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people, you know, they they have somebody write their bio, or they're, or they're like, "What's that from?" It's like, no, that's that's on your uh, that's on your website or whatever. Um, 
but no, I, 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 I think I know what that means. But, but, but if you had somebody that came to you and said, "Hey, uh, I, you know, I'm new to town, or I want to do what you're doing," uh, what might be some of the things on on the docket there on on the agenda to teach that might fall under that category of of a, a functional skill? Um, one, it's playing with others, but for me, it's about. Um, learning good techniques so you're durable so you don't hurt yourself um it's the basic grooves that you're gonna see i try to push people and this this came up with a lot of my students early on was why are we doing this like i try to force the body into the most uncomfortable things right off the bat it breaks all these things so so that being functional means if somebody throws something at you there's not a physical limitation there the, the body can do it so there's function in that. There's function in uh, playing to a metronome. There's function in um, rudiments. A lot of the stuff that one might say are boring, but uh, that's the functional stuff that to me, when I throw you out in the world as one of my students at the end of it, you're going to thrive. You're not going to be afraid of the things that get thrown. You're going to function and you're going to be useful in a band setting. So that's where everything was for me. Yeah, it, 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 this kind of ties into what I was talking about, the electronic drums, and maybe have those in the house to practice, because if I have time to practice, I've had some schedule conflicts that have ended up with no gigs in w- this week, so I'm like, well, I'm going to hit the woodshed, and so before our talk today, I was sitting there working on a train groove with an inverted paradiddle at yeah. different tempos, and then swinging the paradiddle as with a train beat. And it, over and over and over, and I'm like, I know my wife wants to kill me right now. <laughs> um, but th- is that what you're talking about? Like, I, I'm not going to play a train beat like this, even if it's swung. Yeah. But, but what it's going to do is it's going to give me that extra bandwidth to be able mm-hmm. to play my normal right, left, right, left uh, yeah. train beat with a certain amount of strength and confidence. Yes. Yeah. So let's say a train beat. I would literally get them to play every 16th note subdivision on the kick at different parts. So if they hear it or they, they hear a vocal to me, music is so reactionary to me, to the vocal. So if someone's doing a dotted eighth vocal thing here, well, if I can't play it, then it's going to be stumbly and I might never do it. I might never take that risk to kind of have that, uh, that interplay with a vocal or a guitar. So it's about learning every little possibility, I guess. Um, when I'm teaching a train beat or anything, really, it was like, I drove them nuts. They're like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And then six months down the road, we're working on a song and they just play it. And I'm like, remember that? That's why we did it. There's no, there's nothing, there's no stumbling blocks there. It's you're able to play it. And when you can do that and just reach down and, and pull that music out, that's where music's fun. I don't want them to hit roadblocks every month. That's, that's not the point. That's got to be the challenge too, especially when you have young people and, and, and 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 people where uh, and and I don't want to sound like the old guy here and be like well, young people they expect everything instantaneous. Well, I was the same way, you know. We yeah. wanted things. Qu- we had th- things still in the eighties came a lot faster than they did for my parents. But even now, uh, access to information is so strong and instantaneous. Um, you, you know that that to to teach patience. And to try and get the student to realize that this slow, methodical, boring, quote-unquote boring thing that you're doing will pay off. And for a 13-, 14-year-old, you want them as a student because it's part of your work, your income. 
sure. but you have to you have to motivate them too. So I'm sure it's you're walking a, a tightrope there. It is, and it's a lot of times the parents bring it up more than the kids because they're afraid to you know say what they think. But yeah, I think it's a balance. You have to give them something fun to work on, but also. Yeah, when they start to see those results, however small they may be, they tend to to buy in a little bit more. And I had a few conversations with parents. Was like, I, I literally told them if that's if they just want to learn ACDC or whatever, then I'm not the teacher for them. And and to me, it wasn't just about having a student. It was how I saw myself teaching and what I wanted to see out of them when they were done their lessons with me. And I've had a couple of students who've gone on to do they're great young drummers. And I see all that stuff that's paid off for them now. And they have a confidence about them um, with click tracks. They're not afraid of all that stuff, all the technology that they're going to come across. Like they're good at it. And I felt good about that. I gave them that. That's amazing. Well, yeah. when, when you have time to practice, what do you do? I'm a strange animal that way. I, really, it's about songs. Like I pick some really hard stuff. I try to always be song oriented. I'll sit and work on on rudiments and things like that somewhat in, in hotel rooms on a pad. But music's always been function. It's about playing the music, playing stuff I don't know, um, forcing myself in a, uncomfortable situations. Um, I'd sooner practice a song and listen to the vocal and try to, you know, play fills around that vocal not necessarily what's on the recording but try to be musical around it so i that's more of the stuff i practice i try to be more musical mm -hmm. it's not so much a facility for me anymore it's it's how can i make the song better so if you're taking the song and a, a lot of times uh, i'll do that as well but I'll, I'll i'll kind of either transcribe you know on the spot the drum part or, or, or over time play along with it until i kind of know the drum part but you're yep. talking about using the song as a vehicle for creativity yes because ultimately when you're in the studio you're hearing that stuff for the first time so what's your first reaction how good is it that's a skill that people need to work on it's 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 not well if i get five takes of this it's going to be good it's like no uh, be you be expressive and do it quickly and uh, come up with something good because I, I've seen a, you know a lot of big session players work on fills just so they have something unique when they go into their next session it's like that works for me that's not what it's about at all it's what are they giving me to react to right 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 yeah and you're tracking a song and you're like hey um do you know this? Um, do you know this police song? Because I know all the fills to it. I know the groove to it. Like, well, we're not <laughs> tracking that song today. Exactly. We're tracking yeah, this you, person's song. <laughs> exactly. It's a. You just want to fill that toolbox and be expressive in your own way. And again, it's like I when I'm in the studio, I wanna, I wanna react. I don't even want to hear the song unless it's like a rush song or something crazy prog rock that I need to woodshed a little bit. But I mean most songs aren't uh, technically all that difficult. It's what you're doing with them. So I want to hear it fresh. I want an honest reaction. I feel good enough in my skill set that I've built up over the years that I'll have something meaningful to say. Um, so when I'm practicing, it's just building that up more and more and more and uh, yeah. try to be inspired by other stuff. Right, right, right. Uh, no, I, I really appreciate that. Um, I know there's, there's a, there's a access now you can find on any, type of streaming platform or even YouTube, you can find play along stuff. And, yeah. you know, I'm sure there's opportunities there to not be 
influenced by an existing drum part, but see what you can do. And yeah. um, gosh, the ability to just like hit record and and see if you can create that scenario, that recording, that session scenario, yeah. you know, during your free time. Gosh, that's that yeah. that that'll kick your ass right there. <laughs> yeah. There is somebody, I don't know who it is on YouTube, but they, what they did is they take a song and they hire three aces, like three top session guys. And you yeah. probably see, but I think that stuff's fascinating because being that they're all, you know, studio guys and meant to, to, you know, make quick decisions and be relevant in the pop world, let's say they all kind of reacted the same way with subtle differences, of course, but Steven Taylor. Okay. Yeah. Steven's drum shed. Um, he's got some great online stuff, uh, stevensdrumshed.com. Um, we, this was during the shutdown when we spoke, um, at back in August of last year. And so we have yet to meet in person, but, uh, I think, uh, we're about due. I just loved his, uh, exuberance for when he loved stuff they were doing. He was like losing his mind. I thought it was, you know, that's a drummer thing, right? It's like, oh, that's so cool. And uh, what he did there, you know, just it, the way he got so excited about it was as yeah. fun to watch as anything for me. You know, it's funny because the guest right after that was a guy that worked with Rick Beato. Are you hip to his YouTube channel, Rick Beato, All Things yep. Music? Yep. The, I, that's what I love about Rick, too, is he gets so excited about <laughs> parts, like a little kid. And then yeah. I get excited and my family looks at me like, I know why you like that guy. I'm like, yes, because I love it, man. It's so great. Well, one more question. What what was your, I know on your list of just so many people that you've worked with over the years, uh, Michelle was, was on there as well. Do you remember working with her or what was, what was that scenario? If you, if you could recall. Uh, I I played with her a few times in Canada. Um, Particularly it was a Canadian show tour kind of a Canada day thing. I've worked with her a few times on that where she's one of the artists and I'm in the backup band, but um, I've known her when I was with Adam Gregory too. She was one of the artists that I thought was, you know, a God to me when I was a young man, I just loved her. I thought she was awesome. And then I got to meet her and even a better, again, a better person than I ever could imagine. She messages me on a personal level. I've be, um, become friends with her and I just love her. I think she's, a phenomenal musician, but an even more uh, unique and awesome person. Well, she's uh, she represents Canada well, and I feel very fortunate to have connected with her uh, years ago. And um, yeah, I, I I don't thank her enough. Um, when we were doing a little bit more touring, and especially the Christmas tours, it was one of my first experiences doing any long term bus touring. And I just, it set a standard for me Mm. and, um, the way a crew and a a group of people could live in harmony together on, on the stage, you know, no behind the music uh, shenanigans with that. It was, uh, it was great. And we did it. We did a one-off show in Leamington, Ontario about a month ago. Oh, really? Yeah. It was. That's where uh, the ketchup's from. Did you know that? Yes. Uh, yeah, actually, <laughs> my wife pointed that out. It's funny. Okay. <laughs> I, I do remember. Uh, and uh, so management was like, hey, we're thinking about bringing an, an engineer with us. Uh, any suggestions? Well, there's a young engineer that I've been working with a little bit in town. And he just he's from Washington State and just had the personality and the skills. I yeah. was like, 
yeah, I think I have somebody. And so I recommended him and, and he ended, was able to come with us and just fit in because we drove. We drove, oh, wow. grabbed this, got the Sprinter van and, and nine and a half hours, 10 hours right wow. up through Detroit and did the show. And so, you know, you're spending a lot of time together and everybody just chatted on the way up and had a good time and did the thing and hung out a little bit and, you know, spent a lot of time together. And he fit in so well. And I pulled him aside, you know, probably like mid, like probably 28 years old, 27. I said, I'm just letting you know right now, this is not normal. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get used to this because this is not normal. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I told him before, I said, when he he was able to do it, I said, I said, Michelle's going to hug you. Um, She's, you know, I know you're going to kill it. I know you're going to do a great job. I yeah. said, but, um, you know, she's just so great to work with and uh, good, good people. And man, sure enough, it was just like that. And, yeah. you know, he had some technical issues at the very beginning of the show and he was kind of beating himself up on it and it, it worked out. It was a great show, worked out really great, but he felt down about that. But she pulled him aside after the show and she said, come here, I'm, I'm, I got to give you a hug. You did a great job. You don't worry a thing about that. And yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, but man, you don't hear that very often from different artists. A lot of times they don't even remember your name. Yeah. You see them when you walk on stage for the first time for the day. It's that's a different vibe. And, and uh, yeah, some artists are really good at maintaining that, that, that personal level like Michelle. And then there's some, yeah, they literally, they walk on stage counting the first song. So you definitely see it, but I'll say one thing, uh, just chatting with you here, Today to tonight, I guess is you're a perfect fit for the Michelle thing because I could see <laughs> it's just you're the right type of guy for that gig, hundred percent. So. Oh man, well, th- thanks. Uh, that's a good endorsement. Uh, if I ever need to uh, kind of uh, look for sponsors for uh, changing my citizenship, I'll hit you up. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, I'm registered by then, but I don't. I don't think I will be. <laughs> I, I was on tour. I, I we might have been in Edmonton. Oh, cool. Um, I can't remember. It was like it was like one of those where the bus was parked. We had like two cleanup rooms, but we were just going to be parked there for. It, but we were in the city. Yeah. And I like to go out, kind of spend a little time on my own during the afternoons, just kind of recalibrate, give myself some space. You know, go to a coffee shop, read, find a gym, do stuff like that. So I was having lunch. I um, went into this uh, place, and it was it might have been Edmonton. I ordered poutine with um, you know, had a Canadian beer, something local they recommended. Hockey was on TV, and uh, Tom Sawyer came on the radio. Oh, <laughs> that's a perfect thing. I was like, it could this day not become any more Canadian than it is <laughs> right now. Yeah, just walk outside and wrestle a moose or a bear, and you're good. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome, man. That's awesome. Um, well, man, I, I I'm 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 so glad we connected. Um, I I, uh, I so appreciate uh, taking a little time out of your your schedule and and speaking to us, and um, just just sharing with our community uh, who you are, what you've been doing. And, um, and I, I, I hope that sometime we can, we can, we can meet in person, you know? Oh yeah. 
it'll happen for sure. And I appreciate you asking, you know, um, it's, you have a life uh, full of knowledge and uh, experience. And I think it's great to share it. I th- you should be proud of what you've done and what you're doing and where you're headed. So I, I appreciate you asking and the interest. Yeah. 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 Well, it, it's, 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 it's like, again, I get, I feel like I have the opportunity to, to, to learn so much, even just hosting. I, I, I get to just sit here and, and listen for, for the first time, what, what people have to say and what they have to share. And, and luckily over time, we've, we've built an audience that has, has learned to grow from that as well. And, and to, to, to shed some light on, on those of us that are doing it in the trenches mm-hmm. uh, and how important that is uh, to hopefully reveal to people that want to do this that it's like, it, it's cool. You don't have to be Vinny uh, to do this. Um, yeah, but there's one. <laughs> there, is, there is only one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's other skills, there's other aspects uh, of this uh, career that, if employed correctly, uh, you can have a you can have a good time. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah we all have a unique yeah, uniqueness to us, and it comes out in our playing. So celebrate that. Uh, work at your craft, but uh, yeah, it's a wonderful path. It's a wonderful career, and I highly encourage anyone with that passion that I had when I was fourteen, and I know it exists out there, um, to just go and go after it. You won't regret. It. Awesome, man. Awesome. Chad, thank you, man. I appreciate you. you so much. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening and, and have a have a good weekend coming up here. Yeah, if anybody ever has any questions, too, you can reach out to me. You can share my email or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I'm always here for – I'm always an ear. Or uh, if they need some advice or just a funny story, anyone could reach out to me, too. That's great. That's great. Yeah. We'll put links in the show notes and different things like that. So Good. Good chatting with you, man. Yeah. Have a good night, and uh, it was great talking to you. Take care. All right. Be well. See ya. Bye. So there you have it, my conversation with Chad Melchert. Uh, I really appreciated what he said about uh, me being uh, the kind of person that might fit in well with Michelle's camp or uh, would fit in well in Canada. I I will take that compliment. I don't take compliments very well, but uh, I'll take that one. I really uh, enjoyed just getting to know him, and hopefully we can hang out in person someday and, and maybe in Canada. I'll be back with you once again next week with badass drummer Megan Coleman, who's working with a Grammy-nominated artist, Yola. Stay tuned for that. We uh, had a great conversation the other day, and, and I'm so looking forward to y'all hearing that conversation. Send good love and vibes to Zach Albetta, my co-host. He is being a loving husband and a son-in-law as uh, he stands by his wife's side during some uh, rough times with her father's health. So he is is out of town uh, doing what he needs to do to support her. So uh, again, send the love and the vibe their way. But for now, everyone, thanks so much for listening. If you can, get vaxxed and um, hope to see you around. Bye-bye.